My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek, and I know it's been a while since I covered part one of this series, I had a lot of other videos I wanted to get out, but it is finally time to continue our exploration of John Borman's Lord of the Rings script. And if you thought part one was bad, part two gets way worse, for a number of reasons, and it just, it, it never gets normal, so, uh, well, there's a couple of brief periods where it Maybe a little more normal, but I'm not sure if I'm going to get that far in this video. Before I get any further, though, I did want to remind people that I do have a Discord server open, and also I am now on Utreon, which is another video platform like YouTube, but it also is kind of like Patreon in that it's got the same kind of... the same kind of uh, support structure. YouTube has memberships, but it takes a lot more percentage of the you know the subscription or whatever compared to patreon and utreon is actually better than both so if you want to support me or if you already do support me you know consider using utreon instead of patreon because it's better for me in the long run and it doesn't cost you anything extra unless you're at the hobbit level because utreon won't let me go any lower than 299 a month for whatever reason at any rate, that said, let's take a look at the craziness that is the John Borman script, part two. So, last time, of course, we ended at basically the end of the Council of Elrond. And, for obvious reasons of time compression, the script picks up immediately with the Fellowship on the road, traveling to Mordor. And, this isn't a big deal, because if you're trying to fit everything into one movie, which seems to be what's going on here... You're not going to waste a lot of time on farewells, preparation, and all that stuff. So it kind of makes sense. We get a few really weird things, though. For example, it says that Legolas is dressed in feathers. And I'm just sitting here thinking, why? I mean, he's a woodland elf. He should maybe be dressed in a way that's conducive to being camouflaged in the woods. But feathers? It's just, it, it's weird. I would love to see some of the concept art behind this just to get an idea of how outlandish it would have been, but then again, I'm not sure I want to gouge my eyes out. So, <laughs> uh, Another interesting thing that we get as they're traveling is apparently they continue, or at least maybe it's just Frodo, I don't remember exactly because it's actually been a while since I read this part of the script now because it took me a while to get through it, but at least one or two of them are seeing kind of a an apparition of Arwen, who remembers a 13-year-old in this script, pointing the way to, you know, down the road that they're supposed to go. It's kind of like if you have read the Prince Caspian uh, volume in the Narnia series, how Aslan will appear to Lucy and kind of point the way to go that they're supposed to travel to avoid danger. It kind of is that kind of thing. And it's just like, first of all, why Arwen? Second of all, how? What is going on? Like, why this is... It shouldn't be that hard to just find a way south to get to where they're trying to go. So, I mean, that it's just weird. We get a brief kind of dream-slash-memory sequence where Frodo is with Bilbo and gets Sting. But there is no Mithril coat. That never pops up, so, you know, that's kind of disappointing. Uh, we also do get the scene where Bilbo wants to see the ring in this dream sequence, so we at least do get that element 
that wasn't really covered before. And then we get the Krebine scene, and they all hide under cloaks, which apparently were gifts from Arwen long before they ever get to Lothlorien. So, again, kind of a time compression thing. And you may think this means they're going to skip Lothlorien. Kind of, but not really. Some of you have already noted that apparently some of you are familiar with the script and you know what's coming. It's coming. We're still... Arwen not only is the one who gifts them the elven cloaks that allow them to hide from the Krebine, but apparently she also gave them the Limbus bread. And in this version of the story, Limbus bread tastes like whatever you want it to taste like, basically. It's whatever you're thinking of at the time. And so Merry and Pippin, being much less mature in this version than even in the original story, or in any real adaptation that I can think of, are sneaking bites of it, you know, telling each other different flavors and, you know, just enjoying themselves to no end. Gandalf, of course, is not happy about this because they're wasting precious Limbus, and he leans down and whispers, Cock liver oil! Uh, eh, it's just, like, totally needless, and why? It, it's just, you know, if you're trying to save time... You didn't need to give us that, and it didn't need to be magic bread that tastes like whatever you want. This is, that's going multiple steps past, you know, Tolkien-style magic to, you know, even beyond Lewis-type magic, probably. Next, we get a scene with the company camped at night, and Aragorn and Boromir are arguing about what to do with the broken sword, which has not been reforged in Rivendell, by the way. Boromir wants to take it back to Minas Tirith and reforge it there. Aragorn says they have to deliver it to the rightful king, who will then reforge it. Which seems kind of backwards, but whatever. And also it implies that Aragorn is not the rightful king, or at least does not know if he's the rightful king, which is a problem in and of itself. Then they start arguing. Boromir like swipes one half of the sword, and Aragorn and Boromir are about to start fighting. And then an apparition of Arwen shows up again, admonishes them both, says that each will bear a half until you know whenever they can get it all resolved. And then she ends up—I don't remember exactly how—but ends up with like blood on her lips from a wound on herself or something, and kisses both of them and declares that they're now both blood brothers. It's like, okay, first of all, how is Arwen communicating with them in this way? Second, what is the deal with the broken sword? And why are we doing, this is, it's just so strange. Uh, it, it doesn't really seem to make any sense. And some of this weirdness doesn't ever really get resolved. And you'll see as we get toward the end, how, you know, the broken sword thing gets finished up, but some of these elements just, they're just there with no explanation and no real resolution that seems to make any sense. Some of the traveling here is kind of just generic traveling that you're going to get in this part of the story because they're just traveling, and so I'm just going to highlight some of the weirder points. As they get closer to Moria, Gimli just openly balls. He, get, he gets all weepy. Which, you know, that's really not the kind of reaction you'd expect from Gimli in any kind of setting. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and then when they're climbing Mount Caradhras, they... Mount Caradhras is really the wrong thing to call it. But anyway, as they're climbing it, 
Gandalf tries to magically stop the snow, and we get another stupid humor scene where he's got his hand up in front of his face, but the wind blows it smack into his face, and it's like, did we really need that? I mean, this story has been weird, but does it need just absolute silly humor like this? Like, Gandalf can't hold his hand in front of his face in, in resistance to the wind? Really? Uh, he ends up lighting the fire that saves them, but he does it with a flint, not with magic, which seems so weird. Like, you're going to turn the Limbus into magic bread that tastes like whatever you want it to taste like, but Gandalf can't magically start fire. He's got to have a flint. <laughs> it's just so inconsistent. And it's while they're on Carathras that they are attacked by wargs, which are described as, like, mutant half-animal, half-man creatures, which... Why can't it just be monstrous wolves? Why is that... It's just... I don't know. It's just weird. But what's really weird is that during the fight, they're trying to feed the fire so that they can fight the wargs with the fire, and they start all throwing their cloaks onto it, which is kind of a silly thing to do in a cold environment on top of a mountain because you're going to freeze to death, so what's the point? But Gandalf has a really interesting solution to this problem because... He starts giving them all some drink, which presumably is kind of um, inspired by Miruvor, but is clearly not Miruvor, because they all start getting tipsy and giggly and, like, really happy punch drunk and saying really silly things. And one by one, Gandalf has them all lie down in the meltwater that is coming from the fire, and what ends up... It's so crazy. What happens is they all end up in the meltwater and Miru and Gandalf drinks some of the Miravore himself and then lays down in it as well and the water freezes over them. And then we see this sequence of the water freezing over and eventually it breaks apart and they all wash down the mountain together. And it's... Yeah, I, it's so bizarre. Like, they couldn't... Couldn't just have an escape scene where they beat off the wargs and then make it down the mountain. We had to introduce this absolutely bizarre concept where they can freeze themselves and end up down the mountain that way. Once they're down the mountain, Sam remarks that it seems like not much time has passed and yet a lot of time has passed. You get It's, again, this Lothlorien-connected scene where we're not at Lothlorien yet. Don't worry, we're going to get there, kind of. Uh, and they have this debate about time and whatever that's at least reminiscent of, if shorter than, the version in the book. But the overall point is, it seems like they must have been in the ice for several months. Which is, because they're debating about, is it spring or is it autumn? And, you know, I mean, there's there's a whole summer in between there, so... <laughs> Uh, apparently they spent all that time in the ice and didn't die because magic liquid that apparently is like liquor. Anyway, they, after they stop talking about this, Gandalf says, okay, we got to go through Moria. In discussing Moria, Legolas and Gimli have their little exchange about whether it's the elves or the dwarves' fault that started the whole, you know, enmity between the two races, which is kind of weird because up to this point, they've actually been kind of friendly in the script. So it's not like they were hostile to each other the whole time. It really only pops up here, which is 
you know, it would make a lot more sense to do it the way Tolkien did it, which is they both kind of dislike each other or distrust each other, but then start liking each other later. Here is just, now it's just an out-of-place argument, seemingly. The really bizarre thing about entering Moria is that Frodo understands the riddle on the door instantly. I mean, it's not really even a riddle. It's a mistranslation on Gandalf's part in the book, which is kind of makes it a riddle. Here, it's more explicitly a riddle, and Frodo pretty much figures it out immediately. But Gandalf says they have to get, you know, somebody to speak the dwarvish phrase. And to do this, he basically enchants Gimli to relive ancestral memories and act out digging into the earth and fleeing from the Malrog. And it's a really bizarre scene because you're just... Until you know what's going on, because it gets kind of explained more than halfway through the process, you're like, what is Gimli doing? So, it, it but anyway, he eventually looks up and, and, you know, is crying and crying from the memory or crying from, like, the humiliation he's just undergone is not clear. <laughs> because it's a really humiliating scene. Like, if it wasn't explained what Gandalf was doing, it would look like Gandalf was just being absolutely abusive to Gimli in this scene. Let me just put it that way. Um, But he looks up and, you know, he's basically says he's got it, and so he opens the door. There is no watcher in the water. We get to skip that altogether, which seems like a strange thing to do if you're going to way overblow the warg scene. Why wouldn't you put the monster in the water? I mean, but, you know, time compression, I guess. The trip through Moria is not super weird for most of it, although one major difference is that Pippin does not intentionally throw anything down the well. What happens is they come to a chasm Gandalf just reaches out a hand and stops him because because he's about to walk into it by accident and is a frying pan, because apparently all the hobbits carry frying pans, uh, falls down, and that's what causes the noise. There's also a scene where they make it to the Great Hall or whatever, and instead of Gandalf increasing the light to show up the place, Gimli just like swipes his staff and throws it up in the air to create light in more places so they can see around, which a seems like a bad thing to do. Like, if I was with Gandalf, I don't think I would ever feel comfortable just snatching his staff out of his hand. Gandalf's a little too grumpy for that sort of thing, so that's kind of weird, but Gimli in this one is just so emotional about Khazad Doom, let's say, that I guess that's just part of his character. <laughs> oh, another thing I forgot, pretty much as soon as they enter Moria, they start hearing pressure echo around the wall so they kind of know that or at least the viewer kind of knows that Gollum is there from the very start there's it's not like a thing that kind of creeps up on them and you get hints of and then you finally realize what it is uh, which seems a little bit rushed but again time compression could be used to justify that I suppose they come to the path where they have to choose between multiple paths and after choosing the path, then they start hearing beats. And it's not really clear, but you get the impression that it's heartbeats, and they keep walking along, and then Gandalf decides to look down, puts his staff near the ground where the, you know, his, to show the ground with his light, and the beats are apparently the heartbeats of orcs that are starting to wake up, because they're literally walking on orcs. Yeah. Yeah, you got that right. That that's yeah, they're walking on orcs and the orcs are starting to wake up and that's when they start to run and 
the orc chase begins. Don't ask me to explain it. The orcs themselves are described as having both bird and reptile-like features with like a scaly natural armor. So, kind of weird. And by the way, that'll, that'll come up again later towards the very end of the story and get really weird. So yeah, hang on to that mental image. During the orc chase scene, they all, you know, they're just running, fighting off orcs as they go. Gimli kind of wanting to just stand his ground and they have to drag him off, which is at least kind of true to the story a little bit. They end up seeing a light ahead and realize they're close to the exit, but apparently the Balrog comes in between them, or it's not really clear from the script if he's between them and the bridge or if he's behind them, but using some kind of magic one way or another to slow down their progress, which is just, why is this necessary? If we're compressing the time so much that we have to skip, like, the Watcher in the water, for goodness sake, why do we need why do we need to put any kind of magic slowing spell so that we see them all running in slow motion towards the bridge? And by the way, the bridge is a rope bridge, which is totally not a dwarven thing to do. The Balrog is also described as having like a soft changing body shape that's wreathed in flame, which kind of makes a little sense since when the Balrog hits the water in the book, he turns into a thing of slime, but that's really not the idea you get that he's supposed to look like that at this point in the story, so it's kind of weird all the same. Anyway, Gandalf confronts the Balrog trying to get him to stop the slowing spell. Frodo is at one point trying to put on his ring, but Gandalf reaches over and like hits his hand like, no, don't do that. And this is going to be a problem, because over time, we're going to see the use of the ring in ways that is totally inconsistent with the idea that, oh, by the way, you probably shouldn't wear the ring. So keep that in mind. Gandalf here is very clearly trying to keep him from putting it on, but we're going to see weird stuff later. At any rate, Gandalf attacks the Balrog with his staff, which just instantly incinerates, and then he attacks it with his sword. The Balrog envelops him with his wings or something, and then they both tumble and the rest of the party makes it over the bridge. And by make it over the bridge, I mean they're working on making it over the bridge, but the bridge falls apart because it's a rope bridge, and then they have to climb up the rope bridge. Which, again, why do we want to waste time on that if we're having to compress things so much? It's just a strange decision. I, I mean, increase the tension, I guess, but it seems like you could have got plenty of tension out of the Watcher in the Water to make up for that. I mean... It's just strange to me that you would make some of these decisions in this script. But regardless, they get out of Moria. And for some reason, apparently after Moria, they're in a desert and walking around in this dusty, barren country with no real indication that they're near anything of significance or, you know, like, why is there just a desert outside of Moria? I mean, that's not what's supposed to be there. But they're trudging along desperately thirsty, and they spot an oasis ahead, and of course they all rush to it and dive into the water, start playing around drinking. While they're in the oasis, which has some trees around or behind it, uh, they're swimming around, and suddenly there's this woman that stands up out of the water who is quote-unquote sparsely clad. Yes, this is Galadriel. And she then, they're all looking at her, and she says, don't worry, there's no danger, and they look behind, and there's all these archers that came out of who knows where, and it turns out the trees that they saw behind the oasis were actually just painted onto a tent. 
Okay, fine, whatever. Elves are really good artists, I suppose. Uh, anyway, this scene gets really awkward really fast, and that's not even the worst part of this sequence. Uh, it gets awkward because everybody in the party kind of starts preening, like they're trying to impress Galadriel, except Aragorn, who tries to come off as all cool and aloof and whatever, although even he gets kind of embarrassed when she mentions something about the sword and then fumbles awkwardly, and it's like, man, what is this going on here? Uh, but the only people not really preening for Galadriel's benefit are the hobbits. You know, Boromir especially is kind of a bad example because he's, yeah, I mean, he's just kind of imagine what a corny macho dude in a cheesy movie would do trying to get a woman's attention and that's kind of how Boromir is acting. Legolas finally mentions that she is Galadriel, quote, of the mirror, end quote. Um, so, I mean, like, it's a known thing that she has a mirror, which is, okay, sure, but, um, then it goes into a discussion of Galadriel saying that, well, Aragorn mentions that Gandalf was leading them there because they needed to look into her mirror, which is kind of weird for reasons you'll understand in a minute. Uh, and Galadriel says that she knew Gandalf before he took the guise of men, which, strangely enough, is accurate because she did know Gandalf probably in Valinor under the name Aloran, but here the implication is not that. <laughs> so it's not really clear what she does mean, but it's, it doesn't seem to be that she she means it in the way that we as readers of the Silmarillion would understand it. But at the mention of Gandalf, everybody starts acting sad, you know, reflecting on their loss, and the hobbits, other than Frodo, just impromptu start into a dirge for Gandalf, which is just one of the most awkward things that I could think of to put in this sequence. But, you know, whatever, it's it's not near as bad as what's coming. Boromir at this point goes way off the rails and actually walks up to her trying to act all impressive and even kisses her, but she's still acting all aloof. She's been acting cold and aloof the whole time. And she just continues to do that and Boromir realizes he's been rejected and walks away crying, which it's still going to get worse, guys. Just Just wait. We also have this really weird thing where twice or more than twice, maybe, she calls the hobbits halflings, and Pippin just kind of absentmindedly corrects her hobbits. And she gives this really cold stare, like, which is so weird on its own. But then Frodo says, well, you see that stone that Pippin's about to skip? If it floats, we're hobbits. If it sinks, we can be halflings. And then he skips the stone, but then it goes behind a rock. And it's like, what was the point of this? What was the point of this exchange? We're time-compressing things so much that we got to skip the Watcher in the Water, but we're going to introduce this sequence where we're arguing about whether they're halflings or hobbits. <laughs> ah. Anyway, after this exchange, she gets kind of close up to Frodo and whips her hair around, which is whatever, and enmeshes Frodo and says that he alone will look in the mirror. And this is where things go way wrong. The scene shifts to nighttime, and they're in her tent, and by they I mean Frodo and Galadriel only. He looks in the mirror and doesn't see anything, and he's confused. And Galadriel says, well, you, you need more knowledge, and I am that knowledge, and already your eyes are asking questions. 
And then it says that he is looking at her, taking in the beauty of her body, which, remember, she's sparsely clad. And she touches the chain on which is hanging his ring, and he takes her hand and kisses her. And then it moves away to show us the rest of the party. Gimli is talking about how she's a fine piece of rock for a dwarven tool to carve, which is... I'm just not even going to comment on that. Boromir is expressing skepticism of Galadriel, which is kind of weird considering he was just trying to, you know, impress her a little while ago. Aragorn is unconcerned, and they also were discussing the fact that they each want to take opposite sides of the river, except in this case the river seems not to run north-south, but rather east-west, which is kind of weird. But, you know, the point being, Boromir wants to go to Minas Tirith, Aragorn wants to go to Mordor. Uh, and then we get this random scene where Gimli accidentally cuts himself and is moaning in pain, and then the moan shifts to a somewhat more, and this is the word from the script, guys, sensual sound, and then we get mourning, and we see Frodo and Galadriel floating in the water. It is left up to the viewer to determine what exactly happened in between, but I think we all know, and I'm not going to say it. Frodo says that he's ready, which would seem to mean ready to look in the mirror, right? Because that was kind of the thing this was all leading up to. Uh, and then he notices Galadriel's ring and says that his ring should go to her, and he holds it out, and Galadriel reaches out to touch it, but then she acts afraid and withdraws, and he he realizes that he can't give it up and she can't take it, although it's not really explained why, and she doesn't have her monologue. So it's like, why, what, can somebody, like, it, a little bit of exposition is kind of necessary sometimes, so maybe help us out here a little bit. The rest of the party then enters, and they're arguing about which course they are going to take, and they see Frodo, and they all stop arguing, and Frodo looks at him and says that he's looked in the mirror, which he hasn't. At least not that we can see, because if he did it, it was during the scene that we didn't get to see, and unless he's speaking metaphorically in the fact that he just got through experiencing something with Galadriel that made him realize something, there's no indication he ever looked in the mirror other than the one time where he saw nothing and she said that he wasn't ready. So, I don't know what was supposed to go on there. Did he actually look in the mirror and see something? Did he not? It's it's confusing. The script leaves it kind of ambiguous, but it seems that he didn't, and he's really just saying he doesn't need to. Anyway, now we can at least leave that aspect of the story behind and move on to less cringeworthy things. Floating down the river now, they have a few weird encounters. Boromir is clearly bored, as are several of the others with the river journey, because there's nothing to do and no action. Uh, and then we get this weird scene where Pippin notes that the trees are nodding to each other, which... I'm not exactly sure what the point of that is. They're not at Fangorn. We're not... I, I don't know. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Nothing is made of this later. Sam mentions Gollum to Frodo at some point, of course, kind of like he does in the book, and there's actually a scene where Aragorn sees Gollum near the boat and tries to kill him, 
which is a little strange. And Frodo stops him. Aragorn looks at him like, why just stop me? And Frodo just looks at him, and apparently Aragorn understands, because there's no word spoken, but whatever Frodo's look was supposed to be apparently conveyed whatever meaning Frodo was trying to convey. It's not clear from the script what that exactly is. So, I mean, you probably have to see it in visual form to actually understand it, but that's what we got. We got a script, so that's all I can give you. Then we get a scene where they're camped, and, or maybe they're still floating around on the river, but Boromir, at any rate, is asleep, and he's whimpering in his sleep, and Aragorn has a comment about how a strong man's fears hide in his dreams, which is just, again, nothing is really made of this. There's nothing later in the story that I noticed that gives any kind of further development of whatever Aragorn is trying to discuss here. And, like, why did we have to do that to Boromir? That just seems so unnecessary. Uh, And then, as they approach the rapids, then they start getting shot at by orc arrows. It's not quite done as in the book, but it's not crazy different. But anyway, the orc arrows start flying, and Boromir is suddenly all excited because he gets to have some action. Merry actually gets hit with an arrow, and Legolas pulls out a leaf and puts it on the wound to draw out the poison, which seems kind of an unnecessary you know, stealing of Aragorn's healing ability and giving it to Legolas. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Why did you even have to get him get hit by the arrows in the first place? They didn't in the book. You didn't need to make it, you know, more high stakes. It's already dangerous enough, but whatever, there you go. The other members of the Fellowship actually get hit by arrows as well, but the current drags them away. Presumably Legolas does the same thing with the rest of the injured parties, And the next thing we see, they go over a cataract and then run aground. And the camera then kind of sweeps up and shows the landscape ahead of them. And then we get a scene change to the next part of the story, which we'll have to wait for next time. So, two parts into this series of videos, and I haven't even quite covered the Fellowship of the Ring, but don't worry, this is, there's a lot more in the Fellowship and it, it, picks up pace a little more, but all the same, I think this is going to take more than three videos easily. Um, I don't know how many this is going to take, because there's some elements where there's just so much weirdness, but this will have to do for part two, because I don't want to make any of these too awful long. This is in some ways the worst part of the story for reasons that I did not and will not mention, but it's still going to get plenty weird from here. There are crazy changes to the story, so... Stay tuned for more of these. It will continue to be absolutely nutty and mind-blowing in terms of why did they do that. So, anyway, this this gets us almost to the end of the Fellowship. We haven't quite got to the breaking of the Fellowship. We'll start off more or less with that next time. Uh, In the meantime, if you're enjoying this (laughs) jaunt through what is probably the craziest adaptation of The Lord of the Rings ever conceived... Do give it a thumbs up, share it around for anybody else who just needs a good belly laugh. Maybe don't share it with, you know, minors. (laughs) Uh, Please also make sure to subscribe for all future content. I am on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and now on Utreon, as I mentioned earlier. You can also follow me on Twitter for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions, at JRRTLore, and you can support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadie.
Thanks to all my Patreon patrons, especially Ringbearer's Ego Voice and One Patron to Rule Them All, and Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Deanna Kaufman, Tracy Meehan, and Nathan Dufour.